Abolition. Abolition. Now let's talk a little bit about the racist rhetoric of the Republican Party. No, and by the way, sure, the Democratic Party has a history of racism too. That's how they kept power in the Jim Crow South for so long. But the Democrats, starting in the 1960s, went on a deliberate campaign of racial signaling to white people that they were the party of white people. Richard Nixon was openly racist in private. Listen to the, uh, or read the White House tape logs sometimes. Sometime. He sought to undermine Democrats in 1968 when he ran for president the second time with what he called the Southern strategy, welcoming segregationists into the Republican party. It worked. He fear-mongered based on the riots that had taken place in America's inner cities the year before, based on demonstrations uh, against the war by uh, white uh, anti-war young people and so on. His law and order rhetoric, as, as he used it in 1968, was really a thinly disguised message. We'll help you by protecting you white people from those blacks and those hippies. His war on drugs was another racially-based stratagem. His top aide, John Ehrlichman, admitted it later. Here's what John Ehrlichman said about the war on drugs. He said, you want to know what it was really all about? We had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Oh, and by the way, Ehrlichman went on to say, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Protesters and mourners gathered in large numbers all across the United States. Demanding justice after the death of George Floyd. Coast to coast, really, we are seeing some of the largest demonstrations we've seen yet against racial injustice and police brutality. Dear Mr. President, come take a walk with me. Let's pretend you're no better than me I'd like to ask you some questions If we could speak honestly What do you feel when you see All the homeless on the street? Who do you pray for at night Before you go to sleep? What do you feel when you look in the mirror, are you proud? How do you sleep while the rest of us cry? How do you dream when a mother has no chance to say goodbye? Test a 
times of violence have broken out across the country. Officers beating protesters, hitting them with batons, throwing people to the ground, striking again people who appear to be unarmed. Mr. President, are you a lonely boy? Are you a spoiled boy? How can you say that no child is left behind? We're not dumb and we're not blind. You sent their parents to different places and left them sitting in your cages. What kind of father would take his own daughter's rights away? What kind of man thinks a marriage isn't right if you are gay? I can only imagine what the first lady has to say Does she only talk when she copies it all? you to know that you matter. I want you to know that your lives matter. And so I hope that you also feel hopeful, even as you may feel angry. Mr. President, you never take a walk with me. Let's talk about George Floyd. You said George Floyd's death was a terrible thing. Terrible. Why are African Americans still dying at the hands of law enforcement in this country? And so are white people. So are white people. What a terrible question to ask. So are white people. More white people, by the way. More white people. Abolition. 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 Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard, 6 Central and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archive podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. You just heard a clip from the Zero Hour, Hour with R.J. Esco from Nixon to Trump, followed by Keanu, Keanu Lede, Dear Mr. President. My name is Max Parthas, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yusuf Hassan. Peace, Yusuf. 
Hey, peace, Max. Peace and blessings be upon you, upon our entire listening audience in the United States and around the world. Word. Last week we covered multiple issues, all of them dangling from false narratives. Good cops, black-on-black crime, slavery reparations, and the infamous 13th Amendment. And this week, oh man, we're taking on our biggest project to date, I think, and we are going to blame the presidents. But before we get into that, as always, let's check in with Yusuf. What did you think about the newest addition to abolitionist music today, bro? Great selection, man. You did a great job with that mix. You know, I've never heard of the young lady, Kiana Lede, or however you pronounce her name, but that was Lede, a very inspiring track. Very nice track and mixed in perfectly. You know, and right. of course, it's, it's up, you, you know how to rile up the anger with the way you ended that track. So <laughs> we're gonna hear Great that job, a couple brother. times tonight. Thanks, brother. Yeah, You're gonna you hear fired that me up time. already with that one. Um, you know, when I first started producing the song, kind of brought me to tears. Just you know, understanding, understanding can bring sorrow, and I often feel that. You know what I mean? And I thought it would be a great way right. to introduce the program and what we're here to talk about. Uh, we have already expressed through our social media pages that there's no way we're going to be able to cover every detail that's going on with this fraternity called Presidents and their connections directly to modern-day slavery and human trafficking. But we're going to try to give understanding, to show connections, to show intent, and things like that, motivation. Uh, and the power and ideology present to do what they are doing. So we're gonna we're gonna do our best today. Uh, Yusuf, there was some couple things that happened this week for me um, that I'd like to speak on before we start our actual uh, in-depth uh, studies here. And one is sure. my sister Lori Ann is uh, in critical condition. I've been up for like three, four days down the road. We don't know if she's gonna make it or not. She's hanging out by a thread. So if you're listening, just throw out a prayer or some good wishes for my sister Lori out in Northern California right now. Uh, we are praying that she survives Absolutely. and makes it through this. Uh, so, yeah, there's that. And then uh, also I had a conversation yesterday with Ricky Kidd. Uh, Lori, Lori and I talked to him, Tribal Rain. For those that don't know, Ricky Kidd is a man who was incarcerated for 23 years for a crime that he did not commit. He just got out about a year ago in Missouri, uh, and I don't think he got anything for it because Missouri's laws doesn't allow for people that have been unjustly incarcerated to be compensated. So that didn't happen with him. And he's also a PD author. So Prismatic Dreams has published his book already, and we did that while he was behind bars. Uh, one of those people that believed in him from the beginning, you know what I mean? So anyway, right. he's going to do he's doing a tour uh, next month. And he's coming to South Carolina specifically to see us for the first time. And brother was like, you know, Max, this is strange, man. I got a lot of catching up to do. But this is the first time I ever talked to you where the phone wasn't attached to the wall. And, you know, it's a little right. thing like that that really impresses on you just what happened to this brother. You know what I mean? The world right. just passed by, and he lost 23 years of his life. So he's coming here next month. And then we'll do our very first interview in the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center with Ricky Kidd. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And I can't wait for that. You know, yeah, I really can't wait for that. Yeah, that, I'm looking forward to it, man. So we got a lot on our plate today, brother. 
anything that happens through the week for you that you uh, you might want to point yeah, out in the beginning? First, I just have to commend you on your resilience to this mission that we have because, you know, most people under those circumstances with a family member basically riding out on their deathbed, you know, wouldn't be on the air at the moment, you know. So I definitely have to, you know, give you props for that to show, you know, your dedication just to what we're doing. And as far as myself, I mean, I had a normal week. You know, nothing really stuck out. I mean, a few, you know, certain things that we're doing with Justice Through Code at uh, Columbia University. You know, a lot of big things are happening. But, again, it's still building up for the big announcement that's going to be coming soon. So it's that's just been my week, you know. And, hey, for the sake of saving some time, I mean, I'm okay if we jump right into everything right now. Well, we're we're pretty much on time anyway, so it, it wouldn't be doing anything early. All right, with that being said, let's go ahead and get into what we have prepared today for our program, where we show the connections uh, with presidents throughout U.S. history and slavery as we know it today. And it began, of course, with Lincoln. But I don't want you to hear from me, not all of it. I want those people who are involved to speak for themselves. Uh, so let's start it out with former President Obama, explaining first what slavery is and then explaining how Lincoln betrayed us all uh, with his Emancipation Proclamation. So we're going to get in it there, and then I'll come back with more after that. We begin with Lincoln. Okay. Abolition. Abolition. Whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, he had a favorite, favorite formula for doing it. What was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. Soon there will only be the conqueror and the conqueror. You are a good man. With a good heart. And it's hard for a good man to be well good afternoon everybody and uh, president clinton thank you for your very kind introduction uh although i have to admit uh i really did like uh, the speech a few weeks ago a little bit better now, afterwards somebody tweeted that uh, somebody needs to make him secretary of explaining things Although they didn't use the word thanks. And today I want to discuss an issue that ought to concern every person. Because it is a debasement of our common humanity. It ought to concern every community. Because it tears at our social fabric. It ought to concern every business because it distorts markets. It ought to concern every nation because it endangers public health and fuels violence and organized crime. I'm talking about the injustice, the outrage of human trafficking, which must be called by its true name, modern slavery.
Now, I do not use that word slavery lightly. It evokes, obviously, one of the most painful chapters in our nation's history. But around the world, there's no denying the awful reality. When a man desperate for work finds himself in a factory or on a fishing boat or in a field, working, toiling for little or no pay and beaten if he tries to escape, that is slavery. When a woman is locked in a sweatshop or trapped in a home as a domestic servant, alone and abused, and incapable of leaving, that's slavery. When a little boy is kidnapped, turned into a child soldier, forced to kill or be killed, that's slavery. That's slavery. That's slavery. When a little girl is sold by her impoverished family, girls my daughter's age, runs away from home or is lured by the false promise of a better life and then imprisoned in a brothel and tortured if she was in, that's slavery. That's slavery. It is barbaric and it is evil. It has no place in the civilized world. Now, as a nation, as a nation, we've long rejected such cruelty. Just a few days ago, we marked the 150th anniversary of a document that I have hanging in the Oval Office. The Emancipation Proclamation. And I've got the Emancipation Proclamation hanging up in my office. Uh, and if you read through it, it turns out that uh, most of it, most of the document is those states and areas where the emancipation doesn't apply because those folks are allied with the Union, so they can keep their slaves. Think about that. That's the Emancipation Proclamation. Right? Which you, so here you've got a wartime president who's making a compromise around probably the greatest moral issue that the country ever faced because he understood that right now my job is to win the war and to keep, uh, to maintain the Well, you know, can you imagine how sort of uh, the Huffington Post would have reported on that? <laughs> right? I mean, it would have been less for Right? Well, I mean, think about it. Lincoln sells out place. Right? There'd be protests, and we're going to run a third party guy. In fact, I heard Martin Luther King say this one time. We were in Virginia, and we were on the balcony of, a, of an old plantation. It was a conference center where we were having a conference, and uh, they, they set us in these rocking chairs out on the porch and we were looking out and it just happened that there were students from University of Virginia uh, who were doing the serving and who were cutting the grass and it was a good summer job. And Dr. King and I and a few other preachers were laying up there drinking iced tea uh, and rocking back and forth. Look, he said, you know, I can see that when you're sitting up here, slavery don't look so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Today. All right. Uh, before I give you the information on intro and get into what I have to say, Yusuf, it appears that we cannot, uh, our listeners cannot hear anything on the program from the Blog Talk page. 
I've checked it out, and it looks like that we're being recorded, uh, as we are every week, and time is elapsing, but when you click play, nothing happens. It doesn't move. So, yeah, I'm having that same it, issue, too. Right. So not with, not with me today, on our page, but on my, you know, my own personal abolition today uh, access. Yeah, it's not playing so, for some reason. It's not playing for some reason. That's very strange, but considering the topic, anything is possible. You know what I mean? Right. So let's assume that it's being recorded and hope that we're right and that we are not about to waste an hour and a half of our time. Uh, If not, this would be really damn good practice when we do it for real. So here you go. Uh, The comment that you heard during that clip was by Martin Luther King Jr., 1966, followed by Obama's comments on slavery from 2012, Clinton Global Initiative's annual meeting, and the 2013 conversation with students at Brown University. Final comments were by Andrew Young. The music was from the Panther film, which I jacked, chopped, and screwed. It's real simple to understand, and you won't find reasoning like this in your history books. For now, all you need is eyes to see and ears to hear. From here on in, Critical thinking is required. How legalized slavery exists in America, part 104, Lincoln's betrayal. Lincoln was a professed white supremacist who intentionally betrayed everyone with the 13th Amendment exception clause, which allowed prisoners to be slaves. As a lawyer looking for a loophole in a bad situation, facing growing unrest due to human rights violations and fearing slave rebellion, he used an example set by Alabama and Ohio both of which had a convict leasing system in place as far back as 1840 and 1846. The earliest appearance of the slavery exception clause in a constitution that I have found traces back to Vermont 1777. It is said they were the first to abolish slavery, but that's not what they really did. Although it was a great example of how to recreate slavery, and to this day, Vermont's constitutional allowances for slavery are the most ridiculous of all 50 states, allowing enslavement for debts and a vague offense called the like. And I will read that to you now. That all persons are born equally free and independent and have certain natural inherent, inherent and unalienable rights, amongst which are the enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Therefore, no person born in this country or brought from overseas ought to be holden by law to serve any person as a servant, slave, or apprentice after arriving to the age of 21 years, unless bound by the person's own consent, after arriving to such age or bound by law for the payment of debts, damages, fines, costs, or the like. Britain took note, and by 1779, Parliament had enacted the Penitentiary Act, which introduced state prisons for the first time. The act was drafted by prison reformer John Howard and jurist William Blackstone. It recommended imprisonment as an alternative sentence to death or transportation. The American colonies had been used to used as the destination for transported English criminals. England was building prisons in America to provide a colonizing workforce of European indentured and servants, and only two were built in London. Lincoln knew all of this and worked in collaboration with Southern lawmakers to come to this deal of conversion. In his own words, he told the leaders of the South that they were the only differences about slavery 
lie in quality, quality versus quantity. Uh, what I mean is the North thought it was wrong, he said, and should be limited through state federal control. Prisons in the South thought it was a right that should be legal to all citizens. In the end, Lincoln won and enacted the full conversion of slavery to prison slavery, from citizen-owned to state and federal-owned. Uh, you should take a look at Lincoln's letter to Alexander H. Stevens, December 22, 1860. This letter was written two days after South Carolina's convention had unanimously declared the union existing between it and the other states dissolved. Two months later than the date of this letter, the Confederate States of America framed a provisional government with Jefferson Davis as the president and Stevens as vice president. Stevens described the new government as, quote, unquote, founded on the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, his natural and normal condition. Until we exposed them, right here in South Carolina where I live, the DOC proudly bragged on their website about a history tracing back to their very first state prison in 1866, exactly one year after the emancipation. Chain gangs were part of the prison slave labor practice and in particular, a massive road development project during the 1890s. Anytime more laborers were needed, business leaders would contact the local politicians or magistrates who would use policing and courts in concert with existing black code laws to gather men, women, and children at their leisure. Black communities at the 1865 were turned into human shopping malls. So with the ratification of the 13th Amendment convict leasing, as it has been practiced in 1846, Alabama continued on until July 1st, 1928, according to some historians. That is at least 73 years of suffering and bondage after slavery supposedly ended, all the way through segregation and Jim Crow laws. This is why we say as abolitionists that slavery did not end at any time in American history. It would have, was only transformed. The next stage became known as Unicor and began on December 11, 1934, as a subsidiary to the U.S. Incorporated and is today a billion-dollar-a-year industry. Their primary product is prison labor and services at cutthroat cost. I mean, who can compete with slave labor? And they have the veritable chokehold contract on all goods made for the U.S. government. They and other prison labor companies provide caged and working bodies for commercial, international, private corporations like Whole Foods, McDonald's, Starbucks, Verizon, and dozens of other corporations. We'll get into that during the later parts of this presentation. Uh, and with that being said... That was some great information, Max. I mean, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm upset about what's going on with the broadcast, and I'm hoping it's not for nil. I'm hoping it, it, it at least is recording the program because what you just laid down was some heavy stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, man, it was just like, it's one of those where I'm like, man, you got to send me your notes, man. Cause you laid down a lot of stuff. It's a lot to dissect just with, just with that alone, you know, and the only right. caveat that I would add, you know, in mentioning about Unicor was ironically it was signed into signed as an executive order it wasn't passed by congress 
it was an executive order signed by President Franklin Roosevelt, you know, and normally what happens with executive orders, you know, when the next president comes in, it's sort of like you start over, you know, but these, this is one, you know, not the only one, but it's one that carried over through every president up until this day, you know, from 1934 up until now, it still exists, you know, so when we talk about blaming the presidents, here's another instance of something where a president had an opportunity to come in and put an end to something, and they didn't do it. They allowed it to carry on. So that's the only addition. Like I said, you said so much within that few minutes. You know, you said so much. So that's that's what I have to say to that. <laughs> All right, brother. I guess with that being said, we are going to move on to the next segment, which is will be provided uh, by yourself. And I think uh, from what I understand, you're going to tap into Nixon and Reagan. Uh, There's a clip that we have about Nixon and Reagan's racism. Well, they're talking to each other. Uh, Nixon is the president at the time, and uh, Reagan is the governor at the time. And he calls up Nixon, and they have a pretty racist conversation. I don't know if you want to play that before you start, during, or after. You know what, I'd rather play it after, only because it's sort of like a summation to show how they're on the same page, although in portions of what I'm getting ready to, you know, map out, it's going to seem like that they were opponents in certain instances. But the show, when it came down to it in the end, they were buddy-buddy in this fraternity. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and let you start, and while you're doing that, I'm going to see if I can find out what the problem is with our broadcast. So we're being recorded. So here you go, Uh, Nixon and Reagan. Okay. Well, Max, as you already know, I'm a huge fan of Gil Scott Heron. And one thing he does in many of his songs is to give a prelude that says something like, well, the first thing I want to say is whatever it is, and that'll be you know, the theme of the words to follow within the song or the poem that he's doing. So to tap into Gill's style, the first thing I want to say is law and order. And I don't mean the 1953 film starring Ronald the Ray Gun, as Gill would refer to him in his song B-Movie. So when we talk about law and order, that's a phrase that uh, was first used In fact, it was the title of the 1919 speech given by Calvin Coolidge while he was the governor of Massachusetts. And this was in response to a police strike going on up in Boston. He called in the National Guard to quell a weekend of lawlessness when the department attempted to unionize. The Boston papers characterized the cops as Bolsheviks who set out to destroy civil society. There are strident voices urging resistance to law in the name of freedom. Coolidge said they are not seeking freedom for themselves. They have it. They are seeking to enslave others. Their works are evil. They know it. They must be resisted. And, you know, that that phrase, law and order, kind of had no other significance until the 1964 Republican National Convention where Barry Goldwater was the uh, running against uh, Lyndon Johnson. And he rebirthed law and order in his acceptance speech at the National Convention. 
and he said that it was just one of many of the government's inherent responsibilities. But we know uh, Goldwater lost to Johnson in 64, but the law and order, and I'm going to call it the Hegelian dialectical seed, was planted at that time. And the reason I say that is because when we look at what happened during Johnson's administration, so Johnson, in 1964, he signed the Civil Rights Act. Great thing, right? This act signed into law by President Johnson on July 2nd, 1964, prohibited discrimination in public places, provided for the integration of schools and other public facilities, and made employment discrimination illegal. This document was touted as the most sweeping civil rights legislation since Reconstruction. 1965, he had the Voting Rights Act. This act was signed into law on August 6, 1965. Uh, it outlawed the discriminatory voting practices adopted in many southern states after the Civil War, including literacy tests as a prerequisite to voting. Everything sounds nice and dandy. Well, what we didn't hear about was his law, force, law Enforcement Assistance Act signed into law into 1965. And I know by now you're probably saying, well, I thought he was going to talk about Nixon and Reagan. And what I'm saying is going to have great significance as I'm leading up to Nixon. But it started back when we go all the way back to Kennedy's Juvenile Delinquency Act in 1961, which Johnson's Law Enforcement Assistance Act of 65 was a follow-up of that, and it led to children and teens having more formalized contact with police officers. That led to more juveniles entering the criminal justice system. So it basically opened the door for the federal government to be able to give funds to states and local communities for law enforcement to pay for more police officers, to pay for hardware for these officers, and to pay for prisons. That was really the turning point in how we did criminal justice. We fast forward two years. We have the, uh, the long, what is called the long hot summer of 1967, where we had riots all over the country. This is under, still under Johnson's administration. You know, we had uh, Roxbury, Massachusetts on June 2nd when the group of black mothers locked themselves in a government office. We had the Philly, uh, the Philly riots, from what well, they called it riots. It was really student protests from November 10th until November 22nd where they demanded courses in African-American history and an increased number of African-American teachers and administrations administrators and other civil rights. And there are actually some articles that I posted. One is called Race Troubles, 109 U.S. Cities Faced Violence in 1967, and another one called 50 Years After Race Riots, Issues Remain the Same. And so when it came to the Detroit uprising in July 23, 1967, President Johnson called for what was termed the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, known as the Kerner Commission. Johnson intended for the commission to produce a mainstream report that would basically make him look good. That's what he was really, he really intended to do, but the commission didn't follow the White House script, and they determined that the, the I'm sorry, their final report released in 68 used Stark's language to conclude that the riots occurred because white society had denied opportunity to African Americans living in poor urban areas. And the report laid out a plan as to what should, what should happen. 
Look, make massive investments in schools, housing, job creations in the communities. And they say, because what was happening at that time, our nation was moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. And then we saw behind that another round of riots in over 100 cities from April 4th to May 28th of 1968 after the assassination of Martin Luther King. And what came on the heels of that was called the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968. This this led to FBI expansion, gun restrictions, more funding for law enforcement to uh, surveil citizens, and punishment of youthful offenders. So both Kennedy and Johnson introduced policies that made it possible for later presidents to swell out prison populations. Though Kennedy and Johnson did not put such inordinate numbers of Americans especially African-Americans, behind bars, they committed the acts that allowed other presidents to do so. They opened the door for the federal government to become a local crime-fighting uh, crime enterprise. They targeted inner-city poverty, and particularly were programs that sought to get at poverty's roots as well as its branches. Unfortunately, they relied on flawed social science and its racist premises to inform these policies and thereby incorporated the war on crime into the war on poverty. So now let's go into Nixon. During the 1968 presidential campaign, after two years of massive riots, we're talking, some reports say that there were about 160 cities that rioted in 1967, and they said around that same number in 1968 after the, associate, uh, after the assassination of Martin Luther King. So quite naturally, Nixon comes along and he's saying, you know what? Law and order. And he said, laws are not manufactured, they're not imposed. They are rules of action existing from everlasting to everlasting. He who resists them resists himself. <clears throat> Excuse me. He commits suicide. To obey his life, to disobey his death. So here's Nixon's law and order strategy. We had the mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses, street three-strike laws for repeat drug offenders, legalized stop and frisk. The formerly incarcerated were legally denied gainful employment, and they were prevented from having from being homeowners. If we look at July 14, 1969, in a special message to Congress, President Nixon identified drug abuse as a serious national threat, citing a dramatic jump in drug-related juvenile arrest and street crime between 1960 and 1967, Nixon calls for a national anti-drug policy at the state and federal level. On July 17, 1971, Nixon officially declares a war on drugs, identifying drug abuse as public enemy number one. July 1973, Nixon creates the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, to coordinate the efforts of all other agencies. And he said, as part of this uh, war on drugs, we know it was mentioned in the video earlier where his, uh, one of his aides, Ehrlichman, he mentioned, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to either be against the Vietnam War or black, but getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin 
and then criminalizing criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt these communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So that's the legacy that Nixon left behind, and we know at the time of Nixon's administration, there were approximately 200,000 people incarcerated in the United States. So let's go on to Reagan, who's known as the great communicator, or Ray Gunn, as uh, Gil Scott would call him. <laughs> so Reagan made his, had his like national coming out party during the Barry Goldwater run for presidency in 1964. And during the national, the national convention in 1964, Reagan had a speech that was, that was called, uh, gee, I didn't even write down the name of his speech. Well, his, his speech is well known, the title of it and everything. But he said within the speech, the founding fathers knew a government can't control the economy without controlling people. And they knew when a government sets out to do that, it must use force and coercion to achieve its purpose. That's exactly what he said during that 1964 convention. So Reagan had two main uh, pillars of his 66 gubernatorial campaign. Now, let's trace back of Reagan becoming governor in California. During those same riots that we spoke about prior to Reagan taking office, we know in 1965 there's the infamous Watts riots that went on. And under Governor Pat Brown, many felt as though he didn't, re he didn't take order early enough. So Reagan ran on the law and order campaign during his 66 campaign to become governor of California. And one of the things he said was first to send the welfare bums back to work. And second, to clean up the mess at Berkeley. So he's talking, this is coded language that he's using. When he says to send the welfare bums back to work, that's talking about blacks. And when he says to clean up the mess at Berkeley, he's talking about the anti-war demonstrators, college students that were anti-war uh, demonstrators. One of the things that was very famous among uh, Reagan was his war on welfare, and he touted this welfare queen. This was something that was attributed to basically the average black woman on welfare. They referred to them as welfare queens. When in reality, the person that was the true welfare cream was a woman by the name of Linda Taylor, who was a mixed race woman who often told authorities she was white, Mexican, or Hawaii, Hawaiian. So backtracking a little bit, when we go back to the Watts riots, the McCone Commission was formed, just like the Kerner Commission, they came up with the same results. The root causes of the riots was high unemployment, poor schools, related inferior living conditions that were endured by African Americans and whites. It was always about poverty, people reaching out saying, look, we, we need better conditions in our neighborhoods, and both responses were going to be law and order. The only thing, the only solution to 
getting rid of the high unemployment, the poor schools, poor conditions, is to go in and lock the people up. That was the response both times. So let's start looking at Reagan's presidency. In 1984, he passed what was called the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984. And you'd actually see an article that's posted where Joe Biden was the push behind this. The article is entitled, uh, give me one second. Joe Biden pushed Ronald Reagan to ramp up incarceration, not the other way around. And the CCCA led to a 32% rise in prisoners, according to a New York Times article. It's called 1984 Crime Control Act Leads to 32% Rise in Prisoners. In October of 1986, Reagan signs the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which appropriates $1.7 billion to fight the drug war. The bill also creates mandatory minimum penalties for drug offenses, which are increasingly criticized for promoting significant racial disparities in the prison population because of the differences in sentencing for crack and powder cocaine. The war on drugs on the Reagan administration roughly translated to a war on crack cocaine, which led to the first federal mandatory sentencing guidelines for drug possession. This, too, led to a racial disparity in who was using or handling these drugs and who was incarcerated. Possession of crack, which is cheaper results in a harsher sentence, the majority of crack users are lower income, i.e. black. Reagan was famous for his celebrity status, communication skills, and strong conservative views, but Reagan's political viewpoint centered on the betterment of the United States and prioritized America on paper. You know, a firm belief in conservative methods of governing Reagan focused heavily on reducing big government spending, establishing a limited government and federalism, and following the conservative belief of keeping government small, Reagan was an active supporter of the privatization of government programs and services. This is important. So Reagan's dedication to privatization eventually developed in its, its own commission, Created an executive order passed in 1987, Reagan's Commission on Privatization was devoted to identifying government programs that are not properly the responsibility of the federal government or that could be performed more effectively by the private sector. However, it was clear from the start Reagan's commission was focused on one thing, the prison system. Reagan's plan to privatize the penal system had begun long before the development of his commission on privatization. Since Reagan lacked credible examples of successful privatization attempts, Reagan intended on making the prison system into the ideal example, which would strengthen his pro-privatization argument. Unbeknownst to the public, Reagan's privatization plan began with the orchestration of the war on drugs and quickly spread across the country. When the war on drugs was first introduced in 1982, drug addiction was treated as a crime instead of a health issue, with the public believing that incarceration and longer criminal sentencing was the solution to addiction. 
Capitalizing on the public's belief, Reagan developed and passed harsher criminal sentencing reforms that caused the prison industry to grow exponentially. Reagan launched the war on drugs with the intent of creating a wave of mass incarcerations that would cause a failure of the existing prison system, ultimately leading to the development and growth of the private prison industry. While Reagan claimed to have launched the war on drugs to protect society from drug abuse, there was an overwhelming lack of statistics to support his claim. Between 1974 and 1982, the climate regarding drugs in America was relatively calm, with 0 to 2% of Americans identifying drugs as the nation's most important problem. It was not until Reagan officially launched the war on drugs that concerns surrounding the drug pandemic began to rise. Additionally, the Reagan administration helped feed the public's concern through their uses of arguments that logically exceeded the available facts. Providing a stark, tra- providing a stark contrast against the war on drugs claims, statistics provided by the National Institute for Drug Abuse state that overall drug use was actually on the decline before Reagan's war on drugs was announced. This discrepancy in fact made by the Reagan administration calls into question the legitimacy of his war on drugs, implying that the war on drugs had ulterior motives. (laughs) No shit. (laughs) Sorry about that. Through his false claims, Reagan convinced the public that drugs were an unstoppable threat, thus creating a sense of panic within society. Reagan exploited this panic and began advocating for criminal criminal justice reforms, reform, citing them as a necessity for for the safety of the public. However, these reforms would ultimately benefit Reagan's plan to privatize the prison system by promoting a spike in incarceration rates across the country. After making the war on drugs into a cause for national panic, Reagan continued with his plan to privatize the prison system by passing several criminal justice reforms that devastated the existing prison system. During the height of the war on drugs, Reagan passed the Sentencing Reform Act of 84, which eliminated probation and parole for certain offenses and mandated longer sentences for others. Reagan also passed two anti-drug abuse acts in 1986 and 1988, which increased federal funding for narcotics control, developed harsher penalties for possession of small amounts of narcotics, and established mandatory minimum sentences for various criminal offenses. Department of Justice statistics indicate that these reforms caused the national prisoner population to grow from 740,000 to 1.6 million between 1985 and 1995. Due to this increase, the majority of state-run prisons were experiencing an overcrowding crisis with several under court orders to relieve inhumane levels of overcrowding. Passing these reforms was a major victory for the Reagan administration because they generated higher incarcer rates than overwhelmed, that overwhelmed the prison systems. Reagan needed to sorry, Reagan needed to overcrowd prisons to prove that the prison system was failing and provide reasons to why privatization was a necessary cause of action to save the system. By breaking the existing prison system through his war on drugs, Reagan provided himself with the concrete reason to finally begin privatizing prisons. 
After the war on drugs fragmented the penal system, Reagan capitalized on the rising incarceration rates and financial constraints of many states in order to initiate the privatization of prisons. As prison populations reached dangerous levels, states were left with two choices, begin construction of new prisons or turn over responsibility of the penal system to private companies. This first option, building new prisons, was nearly impossible due to the high cost of constructing and managing additional prisons. In 1984, it was reported that construction of the new high-capacity minimum security facility could cost upwards of $140 million, while the average annual cost of running the same size facility was $7 million per year, or some $14,000 per prisoner. This immense financial strain left many states with no, no choice but to seek the help of private prison companies who promised to construct and manage prisons more cheaply than the state could. In exchange for their services, states paid these private companies a set fee for each inmate per day in prison. This meant that the private prison companies profited from large inmate populations who were incarcerated for extended periods of time. Well aware of the financial strain put upon the penal system, Reagan intentionally increased prison populations in order to coerce states into privatizing their prison systems. Since there were no other cost-effective solutions to relieve the overcrowding created by the war on drugs, states had to begin privatization and were unable to voice concerns over the new direction the government began taking. This allowed Reagan to quickly institute a major aspect to his political agenda with no resistance from opposing sides. As Reagan began privatizing prisons, he looked to continue growth within the private prison industry. Now, we're going to go a little deeper and show how he carried on his legacy. This is what he did during his presidency. We're going to show how he was able to pass the baton. In order to guarantee the continuation of Reagan's government privatization plan, Reagan and other conservatives developed a mutually beneficial relationship with lobbyist groups, hoping to develop laws that would continue the era of mass incarcerations created by his war on drugs. Reagan joined forces with the American Legislative Exec Exchange Council (ALEC), a conservative lobbyist group that works with private corporations to develop model legislation and propose bills based on the needs of their clients. So Reagan began this relationship with ALEC in 1981, which he assigned ALEC legislators to work on his task force on federalism. These ALEC legislators came up with a comprehensive plan entitled Reagan and the States that highlighted various methods of decentralizing government. From there, ALEC went on to develop a criminal justice task force that worked directly with the two largest private prison companies. Corpor uh, Corrections Corporation of America and Wacken Hut Corrections, which I'm sure Max is going to tell us a whole lot about later on in the program, to introduce laws that increase prison populations and company profits. Reagan developed a relationship with Alex because the direct partnership between the private prison companies and legislators provided the prison companies with an unfair advantage that ensured the growth and continuation of the industry. 
This growth ultimately benefited Reagan's plan for privatization because it showcased the successes that the privatization of government services could achieve, which caused the public to support Reagan's movement. By aligning himself with ALEC and providing private prison companies with an advantage in the legislative process, Reagan created a success story out of the private prison industry which helped him garner support for his privatization moment, uh, movement. Coming up on my last two sections, I'm going to brisk through it, hopefully within two minutes. <clears throat> By strategically fostering a lasting relationship with ALEC, Reagan ensured the continuation of his privatization plan even after he left office. Since Reagan helped establish ALEC as a reputable lobbyist organization, many conservatives continue to utilize ALEC in their fight to grow the private prison industry. In, in 25 states, the Truth and Sentencing Act was enacted, guaranteed that inmates serve at least 85% of their recommended sentences before being released from prison or eligible for, for parole. And the last portion of this I want to mention, through his calculated construction of the war on drugs, Reagan initiated a wave of mass incarcerations, which we know that when we talk mass incarceration, you can't really call it mass incarceration. You have to call it slavery, and we know that it's race-based. That intentionally overloaded the existing penal system in order to increase the private prison industry. By exploiting the war on drugs, Reagan devastated the prison system, which provided him with the concrete reason to begin privatization. This reasoning allowed Reagan to strengthen his argument. I think I've said this already. I may have double-copied something. But in summation, we can see how law and order really meant increasing the population within the prisons. You know, I laid out dealing with going all the way back to Calvin Coolidge, but if we want to just say because he, he wasn't president at the time and he wasn't dealing directly, he was dealing with cops trying to unionize, but we can definitely say. Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Reagan, and many others were all part of this legacy that tie into this fraternity of U.S. presidents increasing the prison population and ensuring uh, Lincoln's legalized slavery continues throughout the country. So that's all I have for that, Max. I know I did a lot of talking for a long time, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I thank you for that, well, for there, hearing me out. There, this is a show about education, uh, re-education, actually, because we already have been falsely educated. And you are lending uh, a lot to that re-education. So we understand clearer the connections that are going on, particularly pointing out things like Alex and how they came to be, the first uh, prisons that he brought in and how much it costs and where the money's going to. Uh, one of the things that we tend to forget in our idol worship, you know, with our money and things like that, is that mm -hmm. many of these presidents were slave owners, <laughs> you know? And things have not right. changed over time in the perspectives that they hold. Just like Trump today has this very same white supremacist ideology that Andrew Jackson had. 
Right. So you talked about Jules on there, man, talking about how he approached his unstoppable threat. And that's what they saw us then, right? As as the yeah. unstoppable threat. <laughs> wow. Um And I and I'm thinking I'm thinking of all the people that I know that were drug users and I see how sick that they were. They were sick. They weren't mm-hmm. threatening anyone. They were sick. They needed help. And they got preyed upon. Well, this is reflected. And sadly, in there's still people sitting in prison behind, you know, that CCCA. Still sitting there. Mm-hmm. You know, thankfully, uh, Russell Simmons got behind the move to get rid of the Rockefeller drug laws in New York. But, yeah, man, it's it's it, it's a lot. It's right. a lot uh, going on. The they don't care, and they didn't want to help when they were the people who introduced the crack. And I'll get in on that in detail just shortly. Um, but you could see the reflection after the Emancipation Proclamation after the 13th Amendment was ratified when they just cast uh, black people out, saying, you know, you're free and you ain't welcome here, so go. And they paid the slave owners, right. but they didn't do nothing to help the people who were now destitute, lost, homeless, uneducated, and uh, unprepared to just be cast out like that. Uh, but, you know, right. even from then to now, presidents have shown that in their perspective, black lives do not matter. So speaking of those presidents that own slaves, uh, let's go into our music break. Today we're going to have some poetry, and it's going to come from Clint Smith, and it's called Why We Shouldn't Forget That U.S. Presidents Own Slaves. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Clintons. Abolition. Abolition. We turn to poet Clint Smith, a doctoral student at Harvard University. He studies racial inequality in the U.S., and his first full-length collection of poems, Counting Dissent, was published in 2016. Letters to five of the presidents who owned slaves while they were in office. George Washington, when you won the revolution, how many of your soldiers did you send from the battlefield to the cotton field? How many had to trade in their rifles for plows? Can you blame the slaves who ran away to fight for the British because at least the Redcoats were honest about their oppression, Thomas Jefferson? When you told Sally Hemings that you would free her children if she remained your mistress, did you think there was honor in your ultimatum? Did you think we wouldn't be able to recognize the assault in your signature as raping your slave when you disguise it as bribery make it less of a crime? When you wrote the Declaration of Independence, did you ever intend for black people to have freedom over their bodies? James Madison, when you wrote to Congress that black people should count as three-fifths of a person, how long did you have to look at your slaves to figure out the math? Was it easy to chop them up? Did you think they'd be happy being more than just half-human James Monroe? When you proposed sending slaves back to Africa, did black bodies feel like rented tools? When you branded them, did the scar on their chest include an expiration date? When you named the country Liberia, were you trying to be ironic? Does this really count as liberation, Andrew Jackson? Was the trail of tears not enough for you? Was killing Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, Seminoles not enough to quench your imperialism? How many brown bodies do you have to bulldoze before you can call it progress, Mr. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Jackson? When you put your hand on the Bible and swore to protect this country, let's be honest in who you were talking about. When the first Independence Day fireworks set the sky aflame, don't forget where we were watching from. So when you remember Jefferson's genius, don't forget the slaves who built the bookshelves in his library. When you remember Jackson's victories in war, don't forget what he was fighting to preserve. 
when you sing that this country was founded on freedom, don't forget the duet of shackles dragging against the ground my entire life. I have been taught how perfect this country was, but no one ever told me about the pages torn out of my textbooks, how black and brown bodies have been bludgeoned for three centuries and find no place in the curriculum. Oppression doesn't disappear just because you decided not to teach us that chapter. If you only hear one side of the story, at some point you have to question who the writer is. Abolition. 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 Welcome back to Abolition Today. That was Clint Smith, uh, Letter to Five Presidents on Slaves. So with that said, let's go ahead and get into the Clintons, man. You know, uh, there's so much that I got to say and want to say, and I know time is so limited. But the Clintons themselves is like five shows we could do, five programs just about the Clintons, especially with the right. information that has been uncovered. Uh, so what I'm going to do is first share some information out of an article I think is one of the most important articles that you could possibly read in this decade about corruption in the highest levels written by a person who was there and participated and provides firsthand knowledge, documents, evidence, and receipts, particularly about the Clinton administration's involvement in for-profit private prisons, which are now among the largest privately held corporations in the entire world. Uh, Again, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we are being recorded, even though we may not be crossed broadcasting live, our controls say that we are on air, and it shows how much time has elapsed. And if we are not being recorded, well, we got a whole week off, brother. All the information is already pulled together. We can just go ahead and do it. Right. (laughs) So here you go. This comes from Dylan Reed and Company Incorporated and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits by Catherine Austin Fitz. I'm going to read just some of it, okay? The Clinton administration took the groundwork laid by Nixon, Reagan, and Bush and embraced and blossomed the expansion and promotion of federal support for police enforcement and the war on drugs with a passion that was hard to understand unless and until you realize that the American financial system was deeply dependent on attracting an estimated $500 billion to $1 trillion of annual money laundering globalizing corporations and deepening deficiency and housing bubbles required uh, attracting vast amounts of capital. Attracting capital also required making the world safe for the reinvestment of the profits of organized crime and the war machine. Without growing organized crime and military activities through government budgets and contracts, the economy would stop centralizing. The Clinton administration was to govern a doubling of the federal prison population, whether through subsidy, credit, and asset for governments or increased laws, regulations, and federal sentencing and imprisonment, the supremacy of the federal enforcement infrastructure, and the industry it feeds was to be a Clinton legacy. Uh, One of the first major initiatives by President Bill Clinton was the Omnibus Crime Bill, signed into law in September 1994. The legislation implemented mandatory sentencing, authorized $10.5 billion to fund prison construction that mandatory sentencing would help require, loosened the rules on allowing federal asset seizure forfeiture teams to keep and spend the money on their operations made from seizing assets, and provided federal monies for local police. 
The legislation also provided a variety of pork. The Clinton administration's Vogue constituency, Community Development Corporation, CDCs, and Community Development Financial Institutions, CDFIs. The CDCs and the CDFIs became instrumental during this period in putting a socially acceptable face on increasing central control of local finance and shutting off equity capital to small businesses. The potential impact of the, on the private prison industry was significant. With the bill only through the House from Attorney General Benjamin Civiletti, uh, former Attorney General General Benjamin Civiletti joined the Board of Wackenhut Corrections, which went public in July of 1994, with an initial public offering of 2.2 million shares. By the end of 1998, Wackenhut's stock market value had increased almost 10 times. When I visited their website at that time, it was offered a feature that flashed the number of beds they owned and managed. That number increased as I was watching it. The prison industry was growing that. That's just one part of it, as I said, from a first-hand witness who was there and involved in the construction of many of these institutions. I'm going to read a couple of more parts of it, various parts of it, and then I'm going to play a clip. So let's go to the next part. Deputy Attorney General Jamie Gorlick, who organized to the, who according to the New York Times article, had overseen the new policy of prison privatization, left DOJ in 1997. She then became the vice chair of Fannie Mae, a government-sponsored enterprise. This means it is a private company that enjoys significant government support. Fannie Mae buys mortgages and combines them in pools. Then they sell securities in these pools as a way of increasing the flow of capital to the mortgage markets. The reader can appreciate why Wall Street will become someone as accommodating as Gorlick at Fannie Mae. We'll work with someone like that. This was a period when the profits rolled in, rolled in from engineering the most spectacular growth in mortgage debt in U.S. history. As one real estate broker said, they have turned our homes into ATM machines. Fannie Mae has been a leading player in centralizing control of the mortgage markets in Washington, D.C., and Wall Street. And that means as people were rounded up and shipped to prison as part of Operation Safe Home, Fannie was right behind to finance and gentrification of neighborhoods. And that is before we ask questions about the extent to which the estimated annual financial flows of 500 billion to $1 trillion money laundering through the U.S. financial system or money missing from the U.S. government are reinvested into Fannie Mae securities. And in another part, they say it is important. Before closing this description of Cornell's extraordinarily good fortune with the Federal Bureau of Prisons and DOJ in the fall of 1995 and summer of 1996 to provide some additional context. During this period, America was in the middle of a presidential election. Bill Clinton and Al Gore were both were running for their second term. Dillon Reed was a traditional Republican firm with the largest billing investors in Cornell, giving generously to Republican Party as well as to the Dole Kemp campaign, whose campaign manager, Scott Reed, had been Kemp's chief of staff at HUD and then executive director of the Republican Party. The corporate ancestry and relations of Cornell, Betchel, Houston, their auditor, 
Arthur Henderson's Houston office, their attorney, Baker Botts, and their construction company, Holly Burton, you know that name, Holly Burton, KBR, are ties all deeply associated with the Bush family and the Republican camp. If you want to see a bipartisan system at work, follow the money. In the middle of a presidential election, a Democratic administration engineered significant equity value into the Republican firm's back pocket. If you step back and take the longer view, however, what you realize is that many of the players involved appear to have connections to Iran-Contra and money laundering networks. A surprising number of them went to Harvard and other universities whose endowments are significant players in the investment world. And as it turned out, while the U.S. prison population was soaring from 1 million to 2 million people and U.S. government and consumer debt was skyrocketing, Harvard endowment was also growing from $4 billion to $19 billion during the Clinton administration. Harvard and Harvard graduates seem to be in the thick of many things profitable. I'm only going to read a little bit more of this because I know time is short, so let me share a few more things with you, okay? Others were not so, so, so positive. And mind you, I'm skipping parts. These are just different sections I'm reading. So this other section says, others were not so positive, including special interests whose business had become managing the poor and who would be out of business if new tools and opportunities were to significantly decrease the number of people who were poor. Many of these were traditional, powerful Democratic constituencies, including private for-profit foundations, universities, and not-for-profit agencies that had built up significant infrastructure, servicing, and supporting programs to house, feed, and supervise poor people. If people were no longer poor, what was their purpose? When we made a presentation to a group of leading foundations in partnership with a Los Angeles entertainment company interested in using entertainment skills to make make training fun, the head of low-income programs at Fannie Mae told me that it was the most depressing presentation he had ever seen. It implied that the poor did not need his help and that his life and work had no meaning. It appeared he did not want to end poverty. His personal meaning was derived from poverty continuing, if not growing. Real estate interests that were uh, hoping to gentrify neighborhoods as a result of welfare reform were also not pleased. They would make more money turning over populations rather than helping the current population improve without moving. Their allies were enforcement teams like the HUD OIG that won funding and generated revenues from helping to get one group out so another group could be moved in. We were warned that the HUD Inspector General's office had a very negative response to the neighborhood networks model of community learning centers with one of the enforcement team members referring to such such efforts as computers for niggers. Computers for niggers. All right. I'm getting down to the end of this part, and then we're going to play our track, man. Um, There's a lot, so much. We're going to share this information so you can see it online. But let me just tell you about some of these universities and how they were involved. You know, he mentioned Brown, and she mentioned Brown and, and Harvard being at the heart of things. Well, let's go into Brown. Brown University, cashing out on Cornell Corrections. In Cornell's prospectus, when Dylan Reed led its second stock offering on October 10, 1997, Brown University's third century fund was listed as a shareholder with 88,818 shares. 
of which 28,818 shares were to be sold through the offering. John Berkland, chairman and CEO of Dillon Reed, was a longtime trustee of Brown University. The price on the 1997 offering was $19.585-8 per share. If Brown's average profit was the difference between the 1997 price and the 1996 offering price of $12 per share, it would have generated a profit in a year's time of 677237 Brown's return on investment under these assumptions would have been a smashing 63%. If it had sold when the stock peaked after the offering at around the time that Dylan appears to have sold out, it would have been higher. The number of people who needed to be in prison for many years to generate such investment profits based on the foregoing assumptions was 67 people, an estimate of the number of men and women in the U.S. who would have to work their whole life to pay the taxes to imprison those 67 people would be 670 people. Brown University also benefited from John Berkman's success at Dillon Reed, including from Cornell Corrections, presumably through his donations and fundraising for the school, a primary function of a trustee. Typically, funding a chair at a university requires a donation greater than a million dollars, even seven, several million. According to Brown's website, there is a John P. Berkman Professor of History at Brown, Omar Baltar. So uh, just that part right there is a section of what I've been wanting to say. You said anything to add on that? That's heavy, and it's so compacted. Like, if we had time for you to really roll that out the way it really needs to be rolled out, we're talking four episodes. Easily. Hey, Houston, I got a call coming yeah. from New York. I mean, from California. It might be about my sister. Will you go into the next musical track for me, and I'll be right back? Which is the which, Clinton Which one mix? are we playing next? Listen to that. The Clinton mix. Okay, got you. So that's what we're going to do, you know, while Max handles that on the other end. And I hope it's, you know, not bad news. You know, it's the next clip is going to be called The Conversation with the Clintons. It's a Max mix here on Abolition Today. Abolition. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. You can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. Last year she said, you can't call me or any black person anywhere in the world a racist. We don't have the power to do to white people what white people have done to us. And even if we did, we don't have that low-down, dirty nature. If there are any good white people, I haven't met them. Where are they? Right here in this room. That's where they are. I know she is a young person, but she has a big influence on a lot of people. And when people say that, if you took the words white and black and you reversed them, 
you might think David Duke was giving that speech. I think all of us have got to be sensitive to that. We can't get anywhere in this country pointing the finger at one another across racial lines. If we do that, we're dead, and they will beat us. I don't know how you would characterize the gang leaders who got 13-year-old kids hopped up on crack and sent them out onto the street to murder other African-American children. Maybe you thought they were good citizens. She didn't. She didn't. You are defending the people who kill the lives you say matter. Tell the truth. We, we can... This is as special as I can. Like, if you don't tell black people what we need to do, then we won't tell you all what you need to do. I'm not telling you. I'm just telling you to tell what me. I, what I mean to say yeah. is that this is and has always been a white problem of violence. It's not... It's, there's not much that we can do to stop the violence against us. Well, if, if that is... Okay, I understand. I understand what you're saying. Respectfully, respectfully, if that is your position, then I will talk only to white people about how we are going to deal with the very real problems. Hillary Clinton and the Clinton family occupy a unique space in the mass incarceration that we experience, that the black community in the United States is experiencing today where the policies that they advance are directly responsible for the largest increase in the prison population under any U.S. president. And so what we were looking for was something a little bit beyond the, the politics and the platform and what emotion she felt, if any, around her being personally responsible and chained to this. Do, do you think she answered that question? No, that's not what we heard. What we heard was a, a conversation about policy and actually uh, some suggestions to what the Black Lives Matter movement needs to be doing. Um, and again, like Julia said, what we were looking for was a personal reflection on her participation and advocacy for some of these policies that have really decimated black communities. We were there and we were in conversation with her and it was something that was, that was readily apparent that that's what she was offering. But what was also readily apparent about what she was not offering was the fact that the reason why the Black Lives Matter movement that she was trying to push the responsibility on to fix these problems. Part of the reason why those problems exist is because of some of the decisions that she made personally. She lobbied for it, and she advanced it as, as floatist, and she also advanced it as a senator of New York. Do you regret your advocacy for the crime bill? Well, look, I... I... I supported the crime bill. My husband has apologized. He was the president who actually signed it. But, Senator but, Sanders but what about, but what about voted you, for it. I'm sorry for the consequences that were unintended and that have had a very unfortunate impact on people's lives. I've seen the results of what has happened in families and in communities. That's why I chose to make my very first speech a year ago on this issue, Errol, because I want to focus the attention of our country and to make the changes we need to make. And I also want people, especially, I want, I want white people, I want white people to recognize that there is systemic racism. It's also in employment, it's in housing, but it is in the criminal justice system as well.
Abolition. Um, you just heard a Max Mix conversation with the Clintons over time with black people talking with the Clintons. I have to tell you that that was a call from my brother, and my sister has passed away. Rest in peace, Lori and Buffer, July 19, 2020. Uh, our siblings are down one more. All right. Um, I'm going to have to compartmentalize this, Yusuf, and try to deal with one thing at a time, okay? There's nothing I can do even processing this information about my sister is a little difficult right now. So I'm going to get into what we was doing and get her done and then deal with it after we're done, all right? I can't hear you, bro, if you're there. I don't know you Sorry, I forgot, to take, I forgot to take myself off of mute. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we'll continue with the show and we'll discuss personal things afterwards. But you know where I am with yeah. that. Yeah. And right, well, you know, getting getting yeah. into this uh Clinton mix, man, you know. It it's just so odd when I hear Hillary Clinton saying I'm sorry for the consequences, the unintended consequences. Lie. Like, what did you think was going to happen when you demonize a group of people? What did you think was going to happen? Everyone was just going to have open arms and sing Kumbaya with them? and Or do you think that they were going to fall under all of those strict sentencing guidelines that her husband signed in the law. And you see how she tried to pass it off on to him. Oh, but he signed it into law. Yeah, but you went out on the campaign for it. You pushed hard for it. Right. As first lady and as senator of New York. Pushed hard for it. She said, uh, she said, some of the best minds in the country come together, and it was a well-thought-out bill. They knew it was going to happen, brother, because they know history right. is a If it's well thought out, how do you not know the consequences? Because that's one of the first things you're going to look at. What are the pros and cons? You, you also see The cons how are you're going to destroy families generationally. That this wasn't a temporary thing. This is like I said, there are people still sitting in prison behind the 94 crime bill on stuff where they get a very small sentence now, if any sentence at all. The, um, the There was an underlining uh, pattern in that audio mix as well of this conversation between black people and the Clintons over time. And that was the hearty attitude that they had, the arrogance to how dare you challenge me. Even when right. Clinton, Mrs. Clinton herself was addressed directly, and she was like, well, is that the way I mean, when we talk about white people from now on? It was just so sarcastic and, and, and snobby to the people whose lives they have destroyed. Uh, even at the point where Clinton was standing there talking about how you are supporting the people who robbed and murdered and killed you and sent out 
13-year-old kids to get hooked down crack. Like, dude, that is the whole demonizing perspective you've been saying since day one, since before Lincoln. It's the same goddamn story every time you tell us that, that we're right. criminals, we're terrible, we're, we're killers and murderers. Ain't nobody in prison because they were innocent. That, that just doesn't happen, right, Clinton? Ain't nobody in prison for drugs, right? Everybody's a murderer or killer or somebody who's putting children on crack. That's that's all you see them at. Right. So a, no one's in there because they were a drug addict and because of the sentencing guidelines, they were sent to prison as opposed to sent to a rehab. You know, and right. something that I forgot to mention, there's a YouTube video where Jay-Z is narrating on, the tra- on this uh, throughout the video. It's called The War on Drugs, From Prohibition to Gold Rush. And, you know, the gold rush nowadays is the prison industry, the prison population. That's the gold rush. You know, we've played videos and clips of, you know, from auctioneers auctioning off prisons. I'm telling the people how much money they make to even bringing forth uh, SEC filings from prison corporations showing, you know, where they're basically guaranteeing how much money they're going to make over a certain period of time to their investors. So that's the new gold rush right there. Well, I'm going to finish off my Clinton presentation with something that I, I, I prepare for the moment, and then we'll go and finish off with a little bit about Trump and, uh, okay. and more. Pardon me if I sound a little down, man, but, you know, I just lost my sister. Right? Yeah, you, you, you're good, man. You're doing much better than uh, most of us would be. All right, all right, all right. How legalized slavery exists in America, part four, the mother and father of modern mass incarceration. I don't think people understand the depths of the charges being made against the Clintons that demand an explanation and investigation. All we get is silence or another showcase person of color uses some politician's soundbite machine. We want the truth. So let me channel my inner prosecutor. We'll call this a poem. Mr. and Mrs. Clinton, do you or have you ever owned stocks directly or indirectly in private prison companies? Do you now or have you ever accepted money through your own accounts, a political fund, or your foundation from private prison lobbyists or companies? Did this occur while you were in office as president? When did this relationship with private prisons begin? Mr. and Mrs. Clinton, did you know? that the Carter Administration Attorney General Benjamin Civiletti joined the board of directors for Wackenhut only a year after it went public with 2.2 million shares? Am I correct in saying Mr. Civiletti is the first U.S. lawyer to charge $1,000 an hour? Were you aware that Wackenhut stock value increased by 10 times between 1994 and 1998? What national policies were you putting into place during that time? Did those policies directly affect the stock value of said private prison? What kind of contracts were held between your administration and said private prison companies during this period? Is it also true that Wackenhut is now G4S, the third largest private prison company in the world, private company in the world? Is it not also the third largest privately owned business in the world, employing over 100,000 people across many nations on the African continent alone? Is it not also true that G4S 
is a part of the GEO Group, the second largest privately owned prison company in the world. Is it not also headquartered in Florida, along with the GEO Group, whose chief officer is George Zoli? Do you have a relationship with either of these companies now? And if not, when was the last time? A couple of more questions, Billary. Are you also associated in any way? And have you received funds, whether personally through your foundation or as campaign donations, from the largest privately owned prison company in the world, CCA, now known as Core Civic? Did you know when you were putting those policies in place that mass incarceration as we know it today would be the outcome? Who did your policies target, Mr. Clinton? You have admitted that you were wrong and will go down in history as the president who put more black and brown men, women, and children into cages than any other president before you. You, sir, ushered in the largest body of prisoners the world has ever seen. There was a time during the Obama election that you said to Senator Edward Kennedy a few years ago he would have been serving us coffee. Mrs. Clinton, you literally labeled and described young troubled youths victimized by centuries of racism, forced poverty, and discrimination as super predators, and used highly publicized examples of children of color committing violent crimes across the nation as a propaganda to push your agendas. Today, we know that many of the examples were innocent young men, since exonerated, who were false, forced into false confessions and railroaded through corrupt courts. Central Park Five, anybody? I believe that you knew how this system would end up all along. Who would gain and who would lose? With your private prison collaborators, you planned for it in detail using a well-thought-out bill, as you called it, and specifically targeted minority communities in a self-sustaining, generational, race-based prison-for-profit scheme in which you benefited from both personally and politically while using the offices of the president and the Senate. As we now know that some of your top bundlers in the 2016 presidential campaign were prison lobbyists, it is evident that you still benefited from this longstanding relationship all the way up until 2016 for working to enrich yourself and in international corporations at the expense, freedom, and lives of American citizens, we charge genocide and demand abolition today. Until our people are truly free from this insanity, you cannot convince us that you believe at any moment that black lives matter, no matter how much hot sauce you got in your purse. May God have mercy on your soul for what you have already done. Max Parkins, you sir. You can't hear me, but I'm snapping my fingers, brother. <laughs> you brought it home on that one, man. You really did, man. Snapping fingers no. on that. Yeah, I had to channel my inner prosecutor, bro, you know, and made, right, turned it into a poem. I mean, there's so much to say, so poetry was the answer for me. It's been, uh, is is it's there a title uh, to that one? Um, Yeah, it's uh, part four. Clinton's in mass incarceration. Uh, how how legalized slavery exists in America, Part Four: The Mother and Father of Modern Mass Incarceration. It's a, it's on our program planning page, and I, I would see. I, I think that uh, Jeanette has probably already put it up. Okay. Yeah, that was that was tough, man. You brought it home with that one. I mean, <laughs> it, 
if I was their defense attorney, you know, I, the the only thing I really could think of is requesting a short recess to <laughs> <laughs> try to get the jury out there. You know, it's like, you know, send them to lunch. It's like, like it puts you in a bad situation because you have no defense for it, you know, and you don't want a jury walking out the room with that on their minds. You know, you you, you like having the jury leave out on a high point for your defense, you know, for your clients. But, man, there's, like, nothing you can do but ask for a recess because. (laughs) Ask for a recess. I kind of show it with these conversations and and with the data that they were deeply involved, knowingly involved. They knew who was going to be affected. They knew what was going to happen. They knew how much money they were going to make, not just then, but over time. And they move forward right. towards making that happen on purpose. And if they're telling you that they're sorry now, it's only to appease you so they can get their people elected. That's the only reason, because they don't give a damn about black people. And you heard it in their own words. Right. How dare and you? And so, like I, like, I was, like I was mentioning earlier about Reagan, the way he went with Alec and they created the Criminal Justice Task Force, you know, but – they passed the baton to the Clintons, and they took it to a whole nother level. It went to a yes. completely different level. I mean, it was already, you know, going up there, you know, where at, during the time of Reagan, the prison population was between 750,000 and one and a half million. But once the Clintons got a hold of it, it went into other avenues. And, and, and remember, we're just talking about prisons. We're not even talking about all the other avenues that this crosses over into. You know, we start well, I, talking I about. Point out, I pointed out the poverty and housing uh, circumstances where they were profiting off sustaining poverty. It was uh, it was in their best interest to keep poverty going uh, in order to make the money that they were making through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, with the corruption that was involved in that. So the drugs, oh, absolutely, the because the housing, all of that was part of it. The prisons was just at the center of it. That's where you ended up and where the money was being made. Everything else yeah. was money laundering. Absolutely, and where where poverty comes in, crimes comes with it. So you can well, we're, we're running, you can keep right. feeding. No, I was going to say you just keep feeding. They keep feeding that machine. We are, we're running a little bit late, bro, so let's get into our last part, which is we want to talk about Trump a little bit today. Uh, you know, we went, started at Lincoln, and we did Nixon and Reagan and the Clintons, and, and we didn't even skip Obama. We let Obama get in on the beginning, and just to point something out, uh, when the for-profit private prisons really expanded in the uh, immigration detention facilities was under Obama's watch, we all remember he asked Congress for nearly $4 billion to build uh, new facilities for the 30 or 50,000 children that were at our borders. So he expanded it by that particular aspect by quite a bit. And although he was the first president to visit a prison, uh, he never had a bad word to say about the corporate prisons at all, not one word. All right, so let's go on to Trump. We'll listen to him real quick. We'll have something to say, and then – after that, we are going to get into our next to the last installment of Ozzy Davis Reads 
Frederick Douglass. Man, we've listened to a whole book together. That is pretty awesome. <laughs> well, here you go. The five Trumpisms. Abolition. Abolition. But the scars and stains of racism are still deeply embedded in American society. And it's a shame and a disgrace that the President of the United States of America is a reflection. He's preaching the seed and sowing the seed of racism. And it's not right and it's not fair for our country. Hi, Mr. President. Yemi Shell Center with PBS NewsHour. Um, on the campaign trail, you called yourself a nationalist. Some people saw that as emboldening white nationalists. Now people are also I don't saying know why that say the that. president. That's such a racist question. There are some people that say that no. now the Republican Party is seen as supporting white nationalists oh, because of your rhetoric. What do you that. make of that? I don't believe. I just well, I don't know why do I have my highest poll numbers ever with African Americans? Why do I have among the highest poll numbers with African Americans? I mean, why do I have my highest poll numbers? That's such a racist question. Honestly, I mean, I know you have it written down and you're going to tell me. Let me tell you, that's a racist question. And Mr. Uh, President, I'm I love ask- You know what the word is? I love our country. I do. You, call, you have nationalists, you have globalists. I also love the world. And I don't mind helping the world. But we have to straighten out our country first. We have a lot of problems. And Ms. Excuse me. But to say that, what you said, is so insulting to me. It's a very terrible thing that you said. I've said to one occasion, even about myself, if I were starting off today, I would love to be a well-educated black because I really believe they do have an actual advantage today. It's very simple. This is a racial situation. It's not covered that way in the press. It's not even discussed in the press. They don't want to discuss it. They stay away from it. I don't and agree with whether you. Whether people like it. Uh, that's what we're talking pe- about is the race thing. And they, well, they told this, I, no, they're this not. This is not just I, I, a shooting. Well, I, I don't think. I think it's a very strong, and in fact, Chicago is another situation. I mean, it's a very racial situation out there. And if you look at what's going on here and Chicago and other places, and the, the press really seldom talks about it. And... You looked at it over here. As soon as he mentioned his black son, the audience went wild in applause. And that's a very sad situation, and it's very sad for the country. And people understand it. In my opinion, the press does not really discuss it. They talk about riots, but they don't say what's at the core of the riot. And Mm -hmm. frankly, uh, it's a very big problem in this country, and it's a problem that is not discussed or certainly not discussed in any great detail, and it has to be. Why are African Americans still dying at the hands of law enforcement in this country? And so are white people. So are white people. What a terrible question to ask. So are white people. More white people, by the way. More white people. I am the law and order candidate. Abolition. That's where we're at today. You just heard first, uh, of course, Representative John Lewis, who just passed away. Uh, Rest in peace. Thank you for your service. Telling us what to expect from this man and what he's about. And then we heard his own sentiments, what he thinks. He thinks that a black woman can be racist and call her a racist. Uh, He thinks that black people are advantaged. 
that we have somehow a superpower that everybody else don't have to gain anything. He thinks that black people are violent by nature, and all you got to do is look at our communities, and you'll see that it's so, so bad there as compared to somewhere else. And he also thinks that black pride is sad for the country, that that's a bad thing. And then finally, he ended by professing that, you know, white life is so much more important than this black situation that we keep talking about. It doesn't matter. As the comedian said, uh, whatever his freaking name is, pardon me right now, that uh, he was like, you know, it's not just black people. They're killing everybody. These cops are murderers, and they're killing everybody. Yusuf? (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, it would almost be funny, you know, if it wasn't really happening. You know, that this is really happening. It's coming from the mouth of the President of the United States. And, you know, when I go back to when Nixon was talking about law and order, there was a story in uh, in, in the uh, in Time magazine back then. Just sure. be mindful of the time. We, we've only got about Oh, yeah, this is real quick. Yeah this is real, yeah, this is real quick. You know, and what Time magazine said that Law and order was shorthand, a shorthand message promising repression of the black community, a bleak warning that worse times may be coming. And throughout the program, we heard that time and again, and we can definitely say that things didn't get better in the black community under Trump. They got worse. You know, so when we hear law and order, we already know what that means. We know that means more police, more arrest, more control, more restrictive movement. So we know what what that means when it when it's said to us. And that's all I wanted to add to that, Max. It's it's laughable. All right, Glenn. All right, Glenn. A quick summation of the program for this evening. We showed you that institutional presidential racism and ideologies of white supremacy continue throughout this fraternity. And it is a single fraternity, a superorganism that you can look at over time. That's what these presidents are. They come from all different directions, Democrat and Republican, but they're still part of the same fraternity. And we also seen that these opinions and perspectives which demonize and criminalize anybody who is not white have not changed since prior to Lincoln. And they have the motive, the intention, and as the facts we've shown today prove, knowingly advanced policies of genocide and slavery. Uh, With that being said, we're going to get into our closing quotes, and then Yusuf is going to introduce our final segment. Um, So I just want to say before my my, my last quote is, uh, God, hold your arms out for my and uh, thank you so much, everybody, who tuned in today. Even if you couldn't hear it online, we are going to get the podcast up if that's possible. If not, then we've got a whole week off, and honestly, I could use it. <laughs> All right, here's my yeah, quote right. for the evening. Here's my quote for the evening. Slavery, like all other great systems of wrong, founded in the depths of human selfishness and existing for ages, has not neglected its own conservation. It has steadily exerted an influence upon all around it favorable to its own continuance. 
And that's from Frederick Douglass, Reconstruction. Uh, my name is Max Parthas. Thank you for being here tonight. I'll see you next week. Peace. Peace, Max. Uh, thanks for uh, everything this week and forever, man. And you know, I'm with you and your family. Uh, my closing quote, do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. And that's a tweet sent out by John Lewis on June 27th of 2018. And I say that in honor of John Lewis and Reverend C.T. Vivian, who are both uh, joined our ancestors this weekend. And getting into our final segment, part 18, and this is the next to last entry in our Bridging the Gap series featuring Ozzie Davis reads Frederick Douglass. This one is entitled, Our, Slaver, Our Freedom is Slavery by Another Name, followed by Trey Songs, 2020 Riots, How Many Times. We'll be back July 26th, inshallah, God willing. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube page for all the news, information, and music you hear on this program. Until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and God bless. Abolition. Abolition. Unlike the movement for the abolition of slavery, the success of the effort for the enfranchisement of the freedmen was not long delayed. In addition to the justice of the measure, it was soon commended by events as a political necessity. As in the case of the abolition of slavery, the white people of the rebellious states have themselves to thank for its adoption. Had they accepted with moderate grace the liberal conditions of peace offered to them and united heartily with the national government in its efforts to reconstruct their shattered institutions instead of sullenly refusing as they did their counsel and their votes to that end, they might have easily defeated the argument based upon the necessity for the measure. But their apparent determination to re-enslave the Negro in some new form of slavery made it essential that the freedmen obtain the shield of the ballot box. Consequently, there came in due time the great amendments to the Constitution, the 14th and 15th, which invested colored men with citizenship and the right to vote. The adoption of the 14th and 15th Amendments and their incorporation into the Constitution of the United States caused many of my former associates in the cause of the Negro to believe that their work was finished. Some even cautioned me against demanding too much for the colored people. They reminded me that only a decade ago, Negroes were slaves without any rights, and that in an amazingly short time, they had been freed and transformed into American citizens and even given the right to vote. Instead of retiring from the field, I once again flung myself into the battle to assist through my speeches and writings in the removal of the hardships and wrongs which continued to be the lot of the colored people of this country. What I said and wrote during these years can best be summed up in the statement I made during my speech in Washington, D.C. in April 1883. What Abraham Lincoln said in respect to the United States is as true of the colored people as of the relation of those states. 
They cannot remain half slave and half free. You must give them all or take from them all. Until this half and half condition is ended, there will be a just ground of complaint. You will have an aggrieved class and this discussion will go on. Until the public schools shall cease to be caste schools in every part of this country, this discussion will go on. Until the colored man's pathway to the American ballot box, north and south, shall be as smooth and as safe as the same is for the white citizen, this discussion will go on. Until the colored man's right to practice at the bars of our courts and sit upon juries shall be the universal law and practice of the land, this discussion will go on. Until the courts of the country shall grant the colored man a fair trial and a just verdict, this discussion will go on. Until colors cease to be a bar to equal participation in offices and honors of the country, this discussion will go on. Until the trade unions and the workshops of the country shall cease to proscribe the colored man and prevent his children from learning useful trades, this discussion will go on. Until the American people shall make character and not color the criterion of respectability, this discussion will go on. With this warning to the American people, I bring my story to its end. I can remember when as a boy I sat on Kennard's Wharf at the foot of Philpott Street in Baltimore and saw men and women chained and put on the ship to go to New Orleans. I then resolved that whatever power I had should be devoted to the freeing of my race. Thereafter, in the midst of all opposition, I have endeavored to fulfill my pledge. Forty years of my life have been given to the cause of my people, and if I had forty years more, they should all be sacredly given to that great cause. Just gotta get some things off my chest. Tough times, I hope y'all holding up. We'll be high because we always is. But I'm feeling like this. How many mothers have to cry? How many brothers gotta die? How many more times? Try to justify Oh, each and every time Playing in the park Taking you a jog Sitting on the couch In your own house Never seen a matter what we do You think we don't matter what we do You got a problem cause the city on fire But you're quiet when niggas die Let the soul up on that body that we bury God, now you no longer have to worry It's so hard to sing these words out loud All these beautiful, precious black lives Lost in the name of senseless white pride Tears falling from us How many mothers have to cry? How many brothers gotta die? How many 